before we get going, here's the bit where I remind you that nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets. You're about to listen to a special preview edition of the Grant Williams podcast featuring my very special guest, Jesper Cole. Jesper Cole is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree Investments in Japan. He's been living in Tokyo since the mid-1980s, or Kyoto and Tokyo since the mid-1980s, and has been, at various points in that time, a chief strategist and head of research for both JP Morgan and Merrill Lynch in the country. He's extremely well-connected, extremely knowledgeable, and a general all-around good guy. Every episode of the Grant Williams podcast, including The End Game, Super Terrific Happy Hour, The Narrative Game, This Week in Doom, Shifts Happen, and Chaos Theory is available to copper and silver tier subscribers at my website, grant-williams.com. Copper tier subscribers get access to all the podcasts, while members of the silver tier get both the podcasts and my monthly newsletter, Things That Make You Go, Hmm. So, if you enjoy what you hear on the show, and you want more high-quality content like it, then please make your way over to grant-williams.com and join our exciting community today. And now... On with the show. Well, Jesper, welcome to the podcast. It's a great pleasure to have you after kind of dancing around for such a long time. Thanks for making the time to talk to me. Thank you for having me. It's a great honor. Japan is a place very near and dear to my heart. You know, we were talking before we started recording. You know, I, I had some wonderful years there. It was a lifetime ago, but it's a place that really left a left an impression on me. And it's a place that I've loved from afar for a long time. And I've kind of bought into the Western narrative about Japan. I thought, oh, what a shame. It's finished. It's over. And the last time I went there, I was struck by how the entirety of Tokyo, as far as I could figure out, had been raised to the ground and rebuilt. And so there's obviously an awful lot more going on in Japan than perhaps people in the West think. So, so what I'd love to do now that we have someone there is to give people a sense of your background, your story in Japan, and then I'd love to talk about the reality on the ground in Japan these last couple of decades before we talk about how things might change going forward. So if you wouldn't mind, if you can weave your story into the reality on Japan the last uh, 20 years, that would be fantastic. I've been stuck in Japan since 1986, and uh, I came as an unsuspecting PhD student and uh, was lucky enough that uh, I was sent to Kyoto, spent the first year there basically learning the language. And then I got involved in Japanese politics at first. I got a job as an aide to a member of parliament who actually ended up becoming prime minister, Mr. Koizumi. And then I entered the wonderful world of finance here in Japan right at the peak of the bubble. It was actually, um, I joined in May 1989, the great house of S.G. Warburgs from England, when the Brits were great. Yes, uh, right. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> You know, it was actually the day, it was the time when the Bank of Japan started increasing interest rates. Of course, that was the beginning then of the end of the bubble economy. But it's quite amazing because, yes, the Japanese stock market collapsed from just around 40,000 all the way down to about 8,000 at one point. Yes, you had zero interest rates for a long, long time. Yes, you had this massive yen appreciation. But the quality of life in Tokyo and actually around the country has actually continued to improve. 
And you can see that, actually. I mean, one silly indicator is sort of the fact that when you look at the sales of Bentleys and Lamborghinis, Tokyo continues to be in the top rankings and continue to be in the top rankings even during the so-called Great Depression here. You talk about buildings. It's quite amazing because even in the sort of mid-1980s, Tokyo already had by far the best uh, public transportation subway system in the rest of the world. Well, since then, they've actually built an additional two subway lines. They have taken the ring road basically underground, so it's now a tunnel system. The building, the skyline of Tokyo, you won't be able to recognize. I mean, the data is amazing. I mean, every year, the equivalent of about 11 to 12 percent of the uh, great A office stock comes onto the market here because basically every building is being scrapped and rebuilt uh, slightly taller, way more architecturally pleasing. About every 20 years, buildings are being rebuilt here. And so, you know, people forget, yes, of course, Japan didn't perform in GDP terms, but in terms of quality of life, in terms of investing in public infrastructure, and ultimately in terms of the public and social and political adjustment, Japan has gone through a real, real rejuvenation. This was not a lost decade or lost generation. This was really a Kaizen, incremental change, step-by-step -step improvement. The Japanese have completely reinvented themselves, and there's an ambitious re imagination that's going on now. It's fascinating because um, the image of Japan from here in the West was very much the things people focused on were the terrible demographics, obviously. That was one reason why Japan's fate was sealed. And again, this difficulty because of, I guess, a lot of the monetary policy going on there, there was a very difficult for people to invest money in Japan. They didn't really feel like they were going to get a return. Everybody has ended up short the yen because of the carry trade. So everybody has a, sh a natural short in Japan. And there's just been this sense that money sent to Japan was dead money. And, and I think, you know, when you look at the chart of the Nikkei and the topics, you know, you see these kind of false dawns. And, and God knows I believed in the first probably dozen of them <laughs> after the 89 bubble burst. And then you kind of just get fatigued and think, you know, it's never going to come back. But very slowly, very quietly... It seems to be doing that. So, so give us a sense on the ground from an investment point of view, the reality of money going into Japan, capital flows, what's been happening with overseas investment, if any, and what the Japanese have been doing domestically. Sort of two primary points, right? And I mean, the first one is that Japan is a very high volatility market, right? And, um, you know, empirically, if you step back, the reason for that is that still about two-thirds of all the earnings for listed companies are generated from the rest of the world, either through offshore production or through outright exports. And so as a result of that, the gearing into the exchange rate and the gearing into global economic growth is just very, very high. It's just literally Toyota has not really made money selling a car in Japan for the last 30 years. They make all their money by selling their cars overseas. And so, you know, I think one of the aversion that global investors have had about Japan is just a hard-nosed analysis and say, well, fine, if all the earnings are being generated overseas, right, there's very little endogenous domestic profit growth or earnings growth, 
then, you know, yes, it's a cyclical play on the global business cycle, but you can do that by going long stocks in Asia, by going long stocks in the United States, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that the lack of an endogenous domestic force was really the biggest constraint that Japan ultimately had. The other element, and this is where it gets interesting, is that Japan's balance sheets, if you look at the operational efficiency, generally it tends to be very, very good. But of course, Japan had terribly lazy balance sheets. We started out after the collapse of the bubble. There was, of course, all these non-performing loans at the household sector and particularly at the corporate sector and financial sector, way too much leverage that needed to be paid down. And, you know, as you know, my friend Richard Koo got this wonderful term, the balance sheet recession. You know, and for all intents and purposes, my God, the corporate Japan paid back almost 100 percent of GDP worth of debt between 95 and 2005. And that obviously sort of reduces the corporate mojo to do anything exciting there. And so the interesting thing now is that now I don't have debt on the balance sheet. In fact, the corporate sector is net cash, as you know. The balance sheets are very lazy because the corporate sector has these enormous amount of retained earnings and cash holdings. They're almost 100% of GDP, while the rest of the G7 typically has got about you know, 35 40% of GDP of cash. So I've got great operational efficiency, lazy balance sheets. And the reason you should be excited about Japan is now there is pressure from all sorts of sides to actually reduce the lazy balance sheets, to invest in future businesses, to improve capital returns. And that pressure is coming, of course, from the foreigners. But much more important is that you've got the Tokyo Stock Exchange. You've got the Tokyo Stock Exchange basically since April looking you in the eye and saying, hey, if your share price trades below book value, we're going to shame you. We're going to publicly question whether you should stay a listed company. And so everybody goes, oh, my God, because you and I as finance guys, we can do all these wonderful rational calculations. But at the end of the day, it's the social construct. What are you running a company for? What is your role in society? Don't be glib about talking multi-stakeholder capitalism, but actually incorporate shareholders as part of your corporate strategy. And this is interesting because the pressure to generate higher return. Again, you mentioned the demographics. I often joke, um, the, the reason I've, I've stayed in Japan is because everybody else gets older faster than I do. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, but but look, I mean, the reality is amazing, right? I mean, you know, the average age is now 50, 50. One in four Japanese is basically over 70 now. And as a result of that, of course, society doesn't move as fast as it did before. I always point out that nine years ago, there was a public degree to cut the speed of all public escalators and electric walkways. So when you come in from Shanghai, when you come in from Hong Kong, when you come in from the Asian cities, the Asian visitors always complain, oh, my God, you know, the escalators are so slow. It's like, well, yes, I've got an old society, so it's a dangerous right. machine. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. But let's stay on that for a minute, because again, you know, this idea has been a pejorative one in the minds of a lot of investors because Japan is just getting old. So what's the point? But, you know, when you talk about the improvements in corporate Japan, we've seen that in buybacks. We've seen that in dividends. We've seen Japanese companies returning cash to shareholders. They've unwound a lot of the 
Keiretsu, they've gone around a lot of the cross holdings of shares. So there has been this sea change that's really actually quite extraordinary when you, when you know anything about Japan back in the day. If you took a snapshot, The full conversation is available to subscribers to the copper and silver tiers of my website, grant-williams.com. Nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets.